Father, we thank you for all the ways that you bless us. And Father, we thank you for blessing us with this country. Thank you for blessing us with people who are willing to sacrifice and give their lives for this country. And Father, we are in their debt. And Father, we want to acknowledge that now. And Father, I pray that you'll be with the families who have been touched by losing loved ones in the armed forces. Father, give them comfort and peace during this time. Father, as we enter into this time when we're going to be considering a portion of your word, Father, I just pray that you'll bless this time. Pray, Father, that you'll speak through me. Father, I pray that you'll have your words fall on tender hearts so that they will be touched. Father, our greatest desire is to be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we want to follow in his steps. Father, we want to be people who others look at and know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ and so that they too can come to know him. And Father, we look forward to the day that you will bring us home to be with Jesus and to be with you forever. And Father, our prayer is that that day will come soon. Father, I pray this through Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. So today we're beginning with a new series of sermons, and we've entitled this series, Face to Face with Jesus. In this series, we'll be encountering encountering Jesus through the eyes and the ears and the experiences of people who actually came face to face with Jesus. And we'll see how their lives were forever changed by their encounters with Jesus. And we'll seek to learn from their encounters as we strive to be true followers, as we strive to be true disciples of Jesus Christ. And with each of the series that we've done this year, we've tried to focus on our 2014 Netherwood theme. That theme is that all may know we are disciples of Jesus Christ. It's a theme that was chosen to reflect our shared desire to follow Jesus at all times and in all places and in every circumstance because we want to make sure that there's never any doubt in anyone's mind that we are servants of Jesus Christ. So as we start the series today, we're going to consider what I think is an incredibly important question, and that question is, who am I? In fact, we're really going to consider two incredibly important questions The first question is, who am I? Who am I when asked by Jesus of others? This is a question which every person who encounters Jesus must answer. They must answer, who is Jesus? And we'll also consider who am I as a question that we ask ourselves. A question that we ask ourselves in light of who we say Jesus is. And this morning we'll see that our answer to Jesus' question of who am I goes a long way in identifying who we are. But we'll also see that our answer to the question we ask ourselves, who am I, goes a long way to identifying who we really believe Jesus to be. So let's turn to our text. We'll be in Mark chapter 8, and we'll start with verse 27. Mark 8, 27. First, let me give you a quick recap about what Mark has reported up to now in his gospel. The disciples have been called, and they've heard Jesus teach, and they've heard him interpret scripture. They've seen him calm a storm, and they've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him heal the sick, and they've seen him raise the dead. They've been the recipient of his blessings as he's given them the authority to preach, and the authority to cast out demons, and given them the authority to heal the sick. 
They've witnessed him miraculously feed large crowds. And they've seen him walk on water. And they've seen him heal the deaf and bring speech to the mute and bring sight to the blind. And so all this has happened. And now Jesus turns his attention to the question, who am I? Mark eight twenty seven. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. Well, obviously, what Jesus had been doing hadn't escaped the attention of the public. The people knew that Jesus was truly somebody different. They knew he was somebody with power. So the speculation was going in a variety of different directions. Apparently, many people, including King Herod, thought that Jesus was actually John the Baptist reincarnated. Herod put it this way. He said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Others looked at Jesus' powerful works and were convinced that he was the great prophet Elijah, returning to Israel as had been prophesied. Other people weren't prepared to go quite that far, but they were willing to accept that Jesus, Jesus was clearly a prophet, a prophet sent from God. Think about those speculations. John the Baptist, Elijah, or a prophet... We need to understand that people weren't demeaning or insulting to Jesus when they speculated that he was one of these people, thinking that he was John or Elijah or a prophet. It's high praise. It's recognition that Jesus is from God. This is placing Jesus on a very high plane. But there's a problem with each of those answers. The problem is they place Jesus on a high plane, but they don't place Jesus on the very highest plane. The problem is is that they give Jesus a lot of esteem, but they don't give him ultimate status. The problem is they identify Jesus as being from God, but they don't identify Jesus as being God. So when Jesus turns to his disciples, he wants to know. He wants to know if their understanding is deeper. He wants to know if their understanding is more complete than that of the public. So he asks of them, How about you? Who do you say I am? And it doesn't surprise us a bit, does it, when it's Peter who speaks up first. And Peter says, you are the Christ. I also don't want us to lose sight of the importance of what Peter has said. To lose sight of the power of what Peter said. When he said, you are the Christ, he was identifying Jesus as Messiah. He was identifying Jesus as the Redeemer, as the Savior, as the Shepherd. He wasn't identifying Jesus as a prophet, but he was identifying Jesus as the one who the prophets pointed to. He wasn't identifying Jesus as John the Baptist, but he was identifying Jesus as the one that John the Baptist pointed to. See, in his answer, Peter places Jesus on the very highest plane. Peter gives Jesus ultimate status. And he identifies Jesus as God in the flesh. Peter gets it. Or does he? Picking up in verse 31. He then began to teach them. 
Let's pause there for just a second. Because Mark immediately gives us a clue that there really is a problem. He gives us a clue that the disciples and Peter don't completely understand. He gives us a clue that they haven't completely arrived in their understanding. Jesus knows they don't have a complete grasp of what Peter's confession really means. So he begins to teach them. He begins to teach them what being the Christ really is and what it really looks like and what they can expect from the Christ. So back to the text. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed after three days and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Poor Peter. He really means well. He's really trying to do the right thing. But he wants to define what it means to be the Christ. He wants to define what it means to be the Messiah. And his definition definitely does not include suffering, rejection, and being killed. That's not what Peter meant when he identified Jesus as the Christ. For Peter, the Messiah was going to save the people from the rule of Rome. But Jesus was intent on saving the people from the rule of sin. For Peter, the Messiah was going to restore a glorious earthly kingdom. But Jesus was intent on revealing God's eternal kingdom. For Peter, the Messiah was about the rule of Israel over the nations. But Jesus was intent on revealing God's rule over all of creation. So ultimately, the conflict between Peter and Jesus is about that question, who am I? Because if Peter accepts Jesus' definition of Messiah, it's going to forever change his identity. It's going to forever change his answer to the question of who am I? And that brings us to our key point this morning. You'll find it on the screen behind me. You'll also find it in the outline that's in your bulletin. Our key point is the key point that we find it was the same key point for Peter and for all followers of Jesus. It's the ultimate answer to who am I is found in our answer to who is Jesus. The ultimate answer to who am I is found in our answer to who is Jesus. And so Jesus then calls his disciples and all the followers around him and begins to explain what it means to identify him as the Christ. He begins to teach what the implications are for those who recognize him as Messiah. Basically, his message is this. If you're going to call me your Messiah, this is what it means for you. If you're going to identify me as the Christ, this is what it means for your identity. Let's pick up the text in verse 34. So, Peter, so Jesus teaches them this. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. 
What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, if I'm going to be your Messiah, your identity is going to change. In fact, your identity is going to be turned completely upside down. In effect, Jesus is warning the crowd. He's telling them to be very careful how they choose to answer his question, who do you say I am? They need to know that if their answer is you are the Christ, if their answer is you are the Messiah, they need to be prepared for their new identity. For followers of Jesus, the answer to who am I sounds something like this. I am one who puts the needs of others before my own. Who am I? I am one who daily dies to myself so I can follow Jesus. Who am I? I'm the one who no longer lives, but Christ lives in me. Who am I? I'm the one whose concern isn't for this life, but who is concerned for the life to come. Who am I? I am his. I belong to Jesus. And that's why I maintain that the most crucial question in each of our lives is, who do we say Jesus is? Because if our answer is anything other than he is the Christ, anything other than he is the Messiah, we're just like the crowds who identified him as Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets. We're only placing him on a high plane, but not the highest plane. We're only giving him some status, but we're not giving him ultimate status. We're identifying him as being from God, but we're not identifying him as the God of our lives. But maybe most importantly, if we identify Jesus as anything other than the Christ and the Messiah, we're denying him the claim over our lives and destinies, and we're keeping that claim for ourselves. But when we do, when we do identify Jesus as Messiah, we're linking our lives and we're linking our destinies to Jesus. We're saying he will lead and we will follow. We're saying where he goes, we will go. We're saying his victory is our victory. We're saying his triumph is our triumph. Who am I? I am linked to. I am tied to. I am attached to Jesus. When we affirm Jesus as Messiah, we also relinquish all authority and all control to him. He's the teacher. We're the students. Doesn't it make perfect sense to do this? Doesn't it make perfect sense to give all control to the one who already has all control? Doesn't it make sense to give all authority to the one who already has all authority? So when we affirm Jesus as Messiah, we give him the right to both determine and address our needs. That's the trap that Peter fell into. He wanted to determine his needs. And he wanted to determine how those needs would be addressed. Peter saw a need to rid Israel of, Romans, of the Roman rule. Jesus saw that the real need was to rid mankind of sin's rule. Peter saw a need for a political or a military revolution. Jesus saw that the real need was for a spiritual revolution. Peter saw a need to exert power and authority over others. 
But Jesus saw a need to give up power and authority to the only one who actually has power and authority. And Peter saw that the only way to really meet his needs was for Jesus to ascend to King David's throne in glorious conquest of his enemies. But Jesus saw that mankind's true needs would only be met by a suffering servant dying on a cross, only to conquer death and ascend to an eternal throne in heaven. Only Jesus knows our true needs. And only Jesus is capable of addressing those needs. And that's why we need to understand that just like for Peter, Jesus and only Jesus offers what we need. But that often isn't what we think we want. Peter wanted a king on a throne in Jerusalem. Instead, he got a king on a throne in heaven. Peter wanted victory over Rome. Instead, he got victory over death and sin. Peter wanted to follow Jesus to glory and power in Jerusalem. Instead, he followed Jesus in suffering, in rejection, and ultimately in his death. Peter wanted triumph in this life. Instead, Peter was triumphant in his death. You see, when we affirm Jesus as Messiah, we affirm that he holds what we truly need. And what we truly need is life with him. What we truly need is death with him. And what we truly need is eternity with him. So the question for us is this. How do we put these lessons from Peter's encounter with Jesus into practice? How do we transition from answering that Jesus is the Christ to actually living as disciples of the Messiah. Well, I'm going to start in a place that maybe you wouldn't think we would start. But I'm going to say that we can do that by revisiting our baptismal confession. Revisiting our baptismal confession. If you have been baptized like I've been baptized, I'm sure you remember standing up in front of whatever group of people were there and answering a question along these lines. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And like me, you answered in some way, yes, or I do, or some affirmation of your belief in Jesus as the Son of God. Hopefully you're smarter than me, though, because at the time I answered that question, I had no idea about its depth, no idea about its importance. I had no idea what I was really affirming when I said, I do believe. You see, I didn't understand that I was being asked the exact same question that Jesus asked Peter. You see, in effect, before my baptism, I was face to face with Jesus and he was asking, what about you, Walter? Who do you say I am? And I didn't truly and fully understand that my confession of Jesus as Messiah was meant to completely link my life and destiny to him. And I didn't fully understand that my confession of Jesus as Messiah was meant to signal that I was relinquishing all control and authority to him. What I didn't fully understand was that my confession of Jesus as Messiah was signaling my intention to die, to die to myself. And that is why confession of Jesus as the Messiah 
so naturally and beautifully leads to baptism. Because in baptism, we completely link our lives and destinies to Jesus. And in baptism, we relinquish all authority and control to him. And in baptism, we die to ourselves as we go under the water. We are buried with Jesus and we rise a a new creature. And we no longer live, but it's Christ and his spirit who live in us. In your outline, you'll see that I've referenced Romans 10, 9. Let me just read that one verse. Paul says this, he says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So Paul clearly and forcefully speaks to the importance of not only believing but confessing that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. And Paul affirms that in a very real sense, confession brings us salvation. But I also feel compelled to say that it really breaks my heart to hear this verse used as an argument against baptism. And that's not what it's doing at all. In fact, I believe that was not Paul's intent Because Paul understood that confession of Jesus as Lord, confession of Jesus as Christ, confession of Jesus as Messiah leads to death. It leads to death of self. And death of self leads to Jesus. And going to Jesus leads us to his death. And that death leads us to the water. Because in the water we join in his death. And we join in his burial. And we join in his resurrection. So please understand, this verse isn't an argument against baptism. It's an argument for confessing Jesus as the Lord of our life. And then acting on that confession as if we truly believe it. And we we link our destinies and our lives to Jesus. Let me also say this. If you, like me, didn't completely understand what your confession meant. And you didn't understand how it was intricately intricately linked to your baptism. That's okay. God has never required perfect understanding on our part to perform salvation on our behalf. But I do want to invite you to join me in revisiting and reaffirming your confession of Jesus as Christ and Messiah. The next thing I think we can do is I think that we can all emulate the Messiah. We can emulate him in our lives. We can do what he did. We can adopt his actions. We can adopt his attitudes. Read with me again from the second chapter of the book of Philippians. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort in his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what we signed up for. That's being a disciple. That's being a follower of Jesus Christ. That is affirming Jesus as Messiah. So, as disciples, we need to understand that we must give up authority and give that to Jesus. And as disciples, we must understand that we have to give up control. And we have to give that to Jesus. And just like Jesus, as disciples, we must be prepared to come and die. I referenced Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the outline. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words. He says, when Jesus bids you come and follow, he bids you come and die. The reason those words from Bonhoeffer resonate so strongly is because they're more than just words. Those words were written from a Nazi concentration camp where Bonhoeffer was being held and where he would ultimately be executed. And he was in that concentration camp because he chose to leave safety and he chose to leave security and go back to Nazi Germany to resist Nazism and to resist its effects on the Jews and other outcasts. See, that's an example of following Jesus at all times and in all places and in all circumstances. And finally, I think we can all allow Jesus to save us from ourselves. The eighth chapter of Romans is a fascinating chapter. I'm going to recommend that you all go home today and read it because we certainly don't have time to read it this morning. We don't really even have time to explore it in any detail. But in a nutshell, in the Reader's Digest version, the chapter is a comparison between living according to our sinful nature and living by the Spirit. And in that chapter, Paul persuasively argues that left to our own devices, we're all doomed to live by our own sinful natures. And that life leads to eternal death. And so we, in effect, need to be saved from ourselves. We need to be saved from our sinful natures. But fortunately, Paul also points out a beautiful paradox. He points out that Christ, through death, made life possible. He points out that Jesus' death on the cross makes salvation possible. And he points out that our death to self, our death to our sinful nature, gives us access to his salvation. It gives us access to life. We live because he died. We live because we died. We died to our old sinful nature. And we live because Jesus and his spirit live in us now. So as we close, I invite you to rejoin to join with me in revisiting our baptismal confession where we confess that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. And I invite you to join with us, all of us here, in striving to truly emulate the Messiah by giving him all authority and by giving him all control and by responding to his invitation to come and die to self. And I invite you to join with us as we all pick up our crosses daily and we follow Jesus as new creations no longer driven by our sinful natures. So, as we end, 
I want to encourage everyone here to once more meet Jesus face to face as he asks you the most important question that you'll ever answer. How about you? Who do you say I am? And if your answer is you are the Son of God, if your answer is you are the Christ, if your answer is you are the Messiah, may God bless you for that confession. But if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but you've never linked your life and destiny to him, if you've never relinquished authority and control to Jesus, if you haven't died to yourself so that Jesus can live in you, we'd like to help you do that this morning. We invite you. But more importantly, Jesus invites you to come and die so you can live with him. So we're going to sing a song. We're all going to stand up. We're going to ask you if you would like to link your destiny to Jesus, that you come down to the front and let us know that that's what you desire. For some people, that's uncomfortable. It's too public, and we understand that. And for that reason, you may also walk to the back and ask someone to direct you to room 104. It's a more private setting where there are just a couple of men, a couple of our elders are in there. They would like nothing more than to talk to you about linking your life and your destiny to Jesus Christ. Whatever your need is, won't you please come this morning while we all stand up and while we sing this song.